Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hey guys, thanks for coming out. Um... So yeah, you heard it here first. Um, so this is my chance to practice everything that I'll, I'll perfect later, but won't have perfected tonight. So, so thanks for coming. Um, yeah, my very first reading, I think, ever for my first novel was in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Um, and there were three, yeah, three people that showed up to that one. There was a drunk guy and um, my mom and uh, my best friend. Yeah, but that was great. And... Um, so I'm glad that my mom's here. The drunk guy's not here, and but but now many friends. So so, thanks. Where? <laughs> He's here. It's so good to see you. No, it was great because this guy came kind of staggering through the reading, and there's a huge stack of books, and the event coordinator like CJ, but but um, was was sort of stunned at the um, the, the poor attendance in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan in February. I don't know why. But so this guy comes wandering through and he says, Hey, what's going on? They say, Oh, we're having a reading, he's a very good author, he's brand new, it's his first book and you should um you should stay and he he looked at the book, he said, Okay, my old lady's not picking me up for half an hour and he sat down and he passed out. <laughs> so so only up from there. I, I'll talk a little bit about the book, I suppose. Um and then I'll read a little bit. And since you know, since you you are all you know all pretty much friends and family, then you're on the hook for like five copies each. <laughs> That's just the way it's going to have to go down. Okay, um, Christmas is around the corner. But um, so yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I I like background. Some people don't like it. Some people don't like the talky talk part where you give all sorts of context. But I guess I do. Um, the book, I, I think, is safe to say, has three real-life parts, um, which I picked up over the years and which sort of took up residence in my head, but didn't really speak to one another at all until relatively recently. Um, one thing that always struck me, I read a biography of Hemingway, which I got on Remainder a long time ago, um, which is the only reason why I would read a biography of Hemingway. Um, and in it, the biographer notes quotes Hemingway saying, quote, the first, the first woman I ever pleasured was an Ojibwe girl named Prudence Bolton, end quote. Um, and I remember thinking about it at the time that, that I, I doubt it. <laughs> the pleasure part, I doubt. Right. Um, and the biographer did some due diligence and discovered that, in fact, there was a real-life Prudence Bolton who did live near Traverse City, and she was Ojibwe. And all he was able to, to dig up about her was that... Um, she probably met Hemingway when she was about 16, and at age 19, she and her boyfriend committed suicide by drinking strychnine together, and she was pregnant. And that's what? The, that's all. That's all we know. And I thought that was pretty a pretty shitty deal. Um, on one hand, we get volumes and volumes. We get you know, you know, biography after biography of of Hemingway, right? You know everything we could possibly want to know more than we want to know about Hemingway, but someone like Prudence, we know we know nothing, and we never will. Right? One sentence. That's it. That's all we get. Um, that's all she's sort of good for, at least in the sort of collective imagination. So that sort of stuck in my head, um, sort of for a while. 
And I heard another story um, from when I was a kid. I was just a kid, and, but my mom was there. We, we never took vacations, really, so much when we were kids, you know? But one time she's like, we're getting out of here. We're going to go. We're just going to go. We're going to get out of the house. We're going we're gonna to leave. And so we, we drove, like, 16 miles <laughs> away to stay at this little resort next to the village that our family's from, um, Bina. Uh, we stayed at Judd's. Is that the resort we stayed at? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, <laughs> long time on the road. And um, I don't know, we were, we were just hanging out, and my dad says, yeah, did you know that there used to be a German prisoner of war camp just right up there, right over there? And I was kind of a World War II buff as a kid, and I just thought this was the craziest thing I'd ever heard in my life. I said, what? A prisoner of war camp on the reservation? He says, yeah, some, some really bright person decided it was a really great idea to put a prisoner of war camp on the reservation on the Mississippi River. And to, um, you know, not like there's any means of, of escape, right? And so two guys tried to escape um, via rowboat, and they got maybe a day's, day's travel down the river, and they got caught. But I just thought this was pretty cool um, and strange to me. You know, there's, the, I always thought the place that I was from was not known to anyone, didn't matter to anybody, was not of any importance whatsoever, and, and the, sort of the events of the world did not touch on um, in any direct way. That was my false impression anyway. didn't touch on our lives. Um, so I was, I was curious and sort of about the fact that it did um, in ways that I hadn't previously imagined. And then, unrelated, uh, maybe about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. My father used to teach uh, high school at, on Red Lake Reservation. He used to work on Red Lake Reservation. And an old colleague of his came to visit him. She used to teach in Panema Elementary School in the village of Panema. And they were talking, and they got to sharing some, some horribly tragic story about something that went down when they were both there. About In this village, there are a lot of dogs in, in Panema, right? There are no vets in Panema. Um, there's no money to take your dog to a vet. Dogs get together, they congregate, they have more dogs, and there's a lot of dogs everywhere, right, running around. There's just packs of dogs. So, as a community, they gather. Do you, this is the way you, they used to do things. They'd kind of gather once a year in the spring. The guys would get together, and they would go out and just drive around and shoot dogs. Um, if you loved your dog, you kept it home that day. And if everyone knew when this was going down, and so they just, you just kept your dog at home, and if the dog was, was roaming around, then you knew it was fair game and they would shoot dogs. And so these two guys were out, and they saw two dogs off kind of in the brush, and they, um, um, they shot one of the dogs, and it started kicking around in the brush, and then it laid still, and they were pretty excited. They got out of the truck, and they went to go pick up the dog and throw it in the back of the pickup, and they realized that it wasn't a dog at all. It was, just, it was a girl. Two girls had been skipping school, hiding out, smoking cigarettes, doing whatever, just hiding out, playing hooky, and uh, shot and killed one of them in this very small village, this sort of incredibly sort of tragic thing. And that kind of stuck in my head. And then, you know, real estate, mental real estate being what it is, you know, the pieces kind of started attaching themselves to one another, and sort of the, the novel started to come together. I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning, on the very beginning, and... Um, and then talk some more. I don't know what we're going to do, Jonathan, because like this is a super serious book. We're going to have a party, by the way. You're all invited. In Claremont. Everyone remembers that day in August 
1952 when the Jew arrived on the reservation. In later years, the Indians would sometimes wonder idly at the strange fact of his arrival and his departure on the first train to Minneapolis the next morning. But the Jew was forgotten that day, until then a day like any other, hot and muggy and filled mostly with the thrum of wind-plucked power lines and the crack of grasshoppers lifting out of the sand and spent grass. The Jew stepped off the train and into the thoughts of the villagers, and he exited the station and their minds just as quickly, because an hour or two after the train groaned to a stop, one of the hotel maids found Prudence's body in the room above the wigwam bar, and then there was that. Her poor young body arched and twisted and frozen in the August heat. And Prudence's baby, too, whom no one saw alive, not even Prudence, in its little cathedral of blood. And then there was that, too. Not long after the maid found her, the sheriff had come. After him, the coroner. Then Felix and Billy, separately. Soon, everyone in the village, Indian and white and in-between, had gathered outside the hotel and in front of the hardware store and the grocer's, on the platform that served the depot, and in the wigwam itself. Since the village didn't consist of more than those small stores and the hundred or so Indians and loggers whose houses clustered around the railroad tracks, the gathering didn't look like much. It was, as dramatic events go, quiet. There wasn't much fuss when her body was loaded onto a canvas stretcher, covered with a white sheet, and handed down the narrow stairs like a ham in paper. The passage of Prudence's body from the apartment above the wigwam was performed with the solemnity of the viaticum. No one raised a fuss, even though she was 26 and pregnant and alone, and now dead. It just wasn't that kind of village, and northern Minnesota wasn't that kind of place. Besides, it was 1952, and there was a war on. The world was much too big to worry itself about a dead Indian girl. No one wondered, really, what had happened or why in the way people who aren't accustomed to being wondered about discover they dislike thinking about themselves. It was too hot in any event to do more than sit and shake one's head. No, it was much better not to think about prudence at all. So that's, that's the beginning. Obviously, it's a bit of a, you know, a challenge, right? I mean, the rest of it is just sort of trying to sort of give a shit about prudence, um, to sort of see what the contours of her life might have been, um, what mattered to her or people like her. Um, you know, how to live one's life or how does one live one's life in some way that we could call, I don't know, artistic, when you really don't, you haven't been dealt a, a very great hand. Um, but how do, you, how do you make something of it, right? So that's, um, that's the start. I'm going to read another section, so... You know, there's this, there's this line in Proust. You always have to bring up Proust, right? <laughs> but I, I always think about, um, and I always bring up at readings. No, just kidding, I don't. Um, where he's talking about sort of how we end up thinking about each other, right? How we, how we regard each other. And he says that, you know, at some point in the, early on in the book, he says, you know, sometimes like our ideas of people kind of float between us and the actual person. And the idea ends up filling out the contours of the person's life so completely that when they actually act out of character with the image or idea you have of them, you're totally surprised. Right? Um, this is just maybe a, a general truth. Maybe this is true of sort of all human interaction. But it's particularly true, I think, in the case of Indians. Um, we are imagined so often and so sort of, so completely and so sort of, 
rigorously having nothing, you know, in all these ways, in ways that have nothing to do with our actual lives, that the fantasies about us end up sort of filling out our realities. So when we sort of go about doing things which are sort of, you know, contrary to those images or fantasies or ideas about us, people are sort of don't know what to do. They don't know how to think. They're very surprised. Um, and it's, as a, as a person, it kind of sucks. But as a writer, it sucks in a, in a different way because you, you want to you create fully realized characters. You want to create characters who sort of, in a sense, live and breathe and sort of have agendas and, and desires and, and, and wants and needs. Um, it's hard enough to do just f- blank it's doubly hard when the reader comes to a book having all sorts of ideas about how Indians should be with really no way to see beyond that. And so one of the ironies of this book is that there are two characters, Billy and Frankie, I'm going to read something of theirs, um, two young guys. Frankie is, is the son of resort owners who own a resort like Judd's that we stayed at in um, outside of Bina. And um, he's coming back after graduating college for one last party before he joins the Air Corps as a bombardier on a B-17. And his childhood friend, Billy, who's from the village of Bina, not named, but that, there it is, the truth is out, um, is waiting for him. And they're both madly in love with each other and, and have made good on it through their teens to an extent. Um, but now they're sort of, it's World, it's World War II, um, they're meeting up in 1942, 43, 42. Um, and so it's like a last hurrah. So I'm going to be a little bit of Billy waiting for Frankie. And it's funny to me, one of the ironies of the book that, I was, that was interesting to me was that a lot of characters like each other. A lot of characters desire each other in this book. There's a lot of sex. Just, you know, that's just sort of a disclaimer. Um, one reviewer said, yeah, there's sex. Lots and lots. I think they used du- double lots. Um, but no one gets it right. right. None of them get it right. Except for these guys. Um, so the two guys who have arguably the healthiest love and sexual relationship are the two guys who really aren't allowed to have that relationship at all. Um, and they, they, they can't say it. They can't even name it, what they have between the two of them. They, can't, they have no language for it, much less an opportunity to express it in any way that, that sort of isn't sort of sinful, I guess. You know? and, um, but it's only because of the illicitness of Billy's love that I think, or at least I think, that he becomes sort of a fully realized character, not just an Indian doing things in a book, which is the most boring kind of book ever. So, I'll read a little bit of Billy and Frankie. <laughs> this character named Ernie, who's a real jerk. That's my revenge on Hemingway. <clears throat> Billy waited on the raised cement platform outside the station in his new jacket and driving cap. The train was due at noon, and it was past due. It was hot, and the sun pretty much straight overhead didn't burn off the moisture so much as set the air to boil. It was sticky and there wasn't much wind. The jacket was the wrong thing for the weather. Brown wool twill, though anything else would have been ruined in weeks, if not days. And it had to last him through the winter. It was all they had at Neeson's anyway. The jacket had cost five dollars and the cap had cost two. Seven dollars for the get-up. 
Through the spring, until breakup, Billy had gone out to Dick Bolton's camp down six mile and peeled spruce for five cents a stick. My mom has done that, by the way. Um, Dick got ten cents from the boss, but he gave Billy and the other kids five, even his own son, Dickie Jr. And so it had taken him 140 sticks to get that hat and that coat. 148 foot balsam and popple logs peeled with a sharpened leaf spring for a spud and lifted over, over and into a neat pile for the skitter. And then Bolton would charge them 10 cents for kerosene and a rag to get the pitch off before he and the other boys walked back to the village. Still, he'd saved his nickels, and by summer he had a good bankroll. He added to it by gutting and flaying fish at Lion's Landing, a nickel a fish. On weekends, he went out to the pines and helped Felix get the place ready. There weren't as many people coming up this summer because of the war, only Felix and Emma for all of June and July. Ernie's parents weren't coming up this year, but Ernie was supposed to arrive with Frankie. Billy did whatever Felix and Emma asked of him. He unwrapped blankets and bedding for the cabins, beat the braided oval rug that lay in front of the split stone fireplace with the canoe paddle, whitewashed the cabins, and knocked the swallow nests off the eaves of the big house with a broom. Emma spent her days gliding from room to room, that's, that's Frankie's uh, mom, changing the knickknacks, rearranging the chairs, making lists. Sometimes she spent the afternoons laboring under a vow of exhaustion in her room. When she moved the rug, she didn't like how the floor in the big house had been worn by foot traffic and beach sand, so she had Billy and Felix move everything out of all the rooms on the ground floor, including the chickering upright. They scraped down the pine and rubbed it with tongue oil and finished it off with Liberian paste wax that she'd ordered special from New York. Then they carried everything back in and she set to arranging again. She tried to pay Billy, as she had in the old days when he started working as a dock boy in 1930, but he refused. Frankie was his friend. He was simply helping his friend's mother. The real payment, the real reward, would be Frankie himself and his reaction when he arrived and breathed in the smell of wool and wood smoke and paste wax and cedar. So the money he saved, nickel by nickel, did not come from the washburns, and that meant something to him. Everything seemed to pay a nickel. A pint of blueberries equaled a nickel. A peeled spruce log equaled a nickel. A walleye, gutted, deheaded, and flayed, a nickel. The train was coming in. Nice coat, Billy. Real nice. Billy looked up, and there he was. Frankie leaned out over the steps, his boater in his hand, his smile broad. Billy couldn't keep himself from smiling because that coat had cost him a hundred logs peeled and piled, and he was thrilled that Frankie had noticed right away. Of course he had. Billy didn't move from where he leaned against the beam of the depot's porch, in part because the coat was so hot he didn't want to soak his shirt. He willed himself to stay put, his hands in his pockets, the brim of his hat just so like an actor in one of the movies they showed in the town hall on Friday nights. The train was slowing down, nearly stopped, and Frankie said something to someone behind him and jumped off and turned to bow with his hat in his hand to whoever was behind him and ran over to Billy and stretched his arm out and shook Billy's hand. Frankie's hand felt small, smaller in his, but it had the same cool, moist feeling that excited him. It was only then that Billy unleaned himself from the post and stood tall, He'd grown a lot in the last year, and his work in the lumber camps had broadened his shoulders and chest, and he noticed happily that he was just as tall as Frankie was and heavier through the shoulders and arms. How you been keeping? asked Frankie. Frankie had on some kind of suit, linen maybe, with pleated pants and deeply pressed creases down the front. He looked right at Billy, still shaking his hand, smiling, smiling, 
smiling like he couldn't believe it. Frankie's hair was cut short on the sides and left long on top. He was as thin as ever, but his cheeks were tanned and his eyelashes dusty looking in that way of theirs. The sun shone through his ears and made, and made them glow red a little. He seemed happy. You look great, kid, really great, said Frankie. Look what else, said Billy, and he opened his jacket wide like a flasher. He'd been rehearsing the move. Frankie's eyes went mock wide when he saw the corked pints sticking out of the inside pockets of Billy's coat. I like how you think, kid, said Frankie. I really like how you think. Billy was one year younger, but he was just as big as Frankie now. Bigger, stronger for sure. The kid thing must be from some movie. Frankie wrote about the movies he saw at the Princeton Garden Theater and the lawn parties they had at Ivy. He'd buzzed one in a Piper Cub, he'd reported gleefully. He wrote about his trips to New York. Worlds Billy couldn't quite imagine without Frankie's help. Frankie sent books too. The Iliad, This Side of Paradise, Tropic of Cancer. These he read and reread and kept in a wooden crate under his bed. Billy wasn't sure he understood the books, but he tried, if only to understand Frankie, who had lived among the kinds of people in those books, visited houses like theirs, walked the streets in the cities they described. As for movies, the only ones Billy saw were years old, not current, just whatever the movie man brought in the circular tins on the back of his Model A. The village didn't have a movie theater. It didn't have a library either, other than the long shelf in the schoolhouse. Billy had read all those books at least once by the sixth grade. Twenty miles away, the high school library was bigger, but not by much. He'd read all those books, too. Hey, said Frankie over his shoulder, look who's here. Just then, Ernie came, came tumbling out of the train. He had, had on a linen suit, too, but his was crumpled, and his hair was sweaty and plastered to his head. He must have lost his hat somewhere between Chicago and St. Paul. He'd grown a small black mustache. His hands were hairy. But it was the same wide, square face, the same barrel body, the same keen, cruel, round, sharp, piggish, stubborn, sly body. Another boy filed out behind Ernie. He was slender and quiet. Davy Gardner. His parents owned the mill, and he was just done with college, too. He nodded. Hey, Billy. Dave. Ernie looked at Billy, but not with the same warmth as Frankie. Ernie rubbed his eyes and stretched as if he'd just gotten out of bed, and the train and the depot and the prospect of the pines all constituted some chore, some duty he must submit to. He walked over to where Billy and Frankie stood gaping at each other, their handshakes still thrumming up and down, slowing noticeably, but still a warm, full grip. He stood with his fists on his hips and then moved them around to push against his lower back. Ernie seemed distracted and drunk, but Billy knew that he saw everything in that shrewd way small, mean people see everything. He studied Billy as though looking at something for sale. Hey, look what Billy's got, said Frankie. Billy opened his coat again the same way he had before, but it felt awkward, like he was on display, like he was acting without an audience. The coat felt shabby now, like something he paid $5 for at Neeson's. Ernie leaned toward Billy, his head low and squinted. He kept one fist on his hip and reached out with his other hand and plucked one of the bottles from its pocket right there on the platform in front of everyone, in front of the loggers and the station agent and the vacationers. Ernie held it up to the sun and then cradled it in his palm. In his, in his palm. It's got no bond, no mark either. Well, it'll work, won't it? 
asked Frankie. It's not for us anyway, lied Billy. It's for girls. He'd gotten the pines from Bolton, who charged him a dollar each. Forty sticks of balsam. Forty sticks peeled and piled for those two stupid bottles. Indian girls, maybe, said Frankie. Or other kinds, I suppose. He said, looking at Billy with that look of his. Come on, let's see what we can do. Ernie led the way, and the four of them left the station left the station agent to manage the luggage while they crossed the street to the wigwam. Ernie opened the door, and Frankie and David followed him. I'll wait out here, said Billy. On lookout, he added. Sure, said Ernie. Sure, sure. Billy felt the day going terribly wrong. It had gotten off its track. Already things seemed beyond fixing, and this was the last time Frankie would be there in a long while. Who knew how long? Five minutes later, Ernie and Frankie and David came out. Ernie held a paper bag in which two-fifths clanked together. What'd you get? asked Billy. Eight roses, said Ernie, smiling to himself. Here, he said, and he handed the bag to Billy and lit a cigarette. He didn't move to take the bag back after his cigarette was lit. Got the scoop from Harris, said Ernie through his cigarette smoke. Seems some German from the camp escaped. Guess he plans on heading down the Mississippi for a rendezvous with a U-boat. He escaped yesterday, said Billy, grateful that he had more of the story than Ernie had. Frankie was excited. Maybe I'll get a German before I leave the States, he said. I can paint a swastika on my plane before I even leave the ground. Those are for planes you shoot down, not for returning escaped prisoners, said Ernie. Still, said Frankie, we can do our part. They're organizing search parties. How about it, Billy? Sure, said Billy. Swell. But it wasn't swell. He'd been hoping for the usual ritual of the pines, the big meal on the front porch, and water skiing behind the Chris Craft, and a chance to go fishing with Frankie. With any luck, Ernie would pass out early. They walked to the Confederate and took drinks from one of the bottles while the station agent loaded the luggage. When he was done, they all got in the cab, shoulder to shoulder. Ernie was behind the wheel, and David was next to him. Next was Frankie. Billy got the window. Frankie put his arms on the backrest as though they were all members of the same club. We're going to have ourselves a time, boys. We are definitely going to have a time, said Frankie. Ernie lit another cigarette and talked about the fishing tackle he'd brought. Frankie talked about the U.S., AAF, and B-17s, forecasting all the daring exploits he was going to have. He switched from topic to topic without completing his thoughts. His hat was pushed back on his head, and his words were a little slurred with liquor or excitement or both. Frankie's arm was heavy and light across Billy's shoulders. Billy's heart felt heavy and light, too. Frankie's hand cupped Billy's shoulder and stayed there. Billy looked out over the fields and clear cuts and scrub as Ernie drove them to the landing so they could cross the river to the pines. The day was already half over. So, poor Billy... We always want what we can't have, right? Um, how we doing? <clears throat> so, I have a favorite chapter. It's always a favorite, right? Um, yeah, I'll just read a little bit of, of, of it. So... And this still happens in Bina, although I haven't been there since to, for this, since I don't know when, Mom. But, but on sort of Christmas Eve, everyone gathers at the Bina bar um, for 
Tom and Jerry's, right? Which is a kind of regional specialty. And um, they're free, right? You get one, you have to pay for them. I don't think you have to pay for them. Or at least, anyway, not in my story. Not in this ideal world, right? And what's, what's in those, Brian? It's um, like brandy or whiskey, eggs, milk. Yeah. They're sweet. They're kind of disgusting. What's that? Nutmeg, yeah. yeah. They're really good. So this takes place in 1944. Um, Frankie's gone, uh, fighting. He's in the Air Force. Billy has joined the Army. He's in the infantry. They're both gone. Neither knows where the other is. Back in the village, Prudence is waiting desperately for Frankie to return. Um, she's got it in her head that he's in love with her and she's in love with him and he just has to survive the war and he's going to come home to her and they're going to have a life um, based on next to nothing. Um, Everybody knows except for her that Frankie doesn't like her or any other girl that way anyway. And that his heart belongs to, to Billy, such as it is. She has no idea, but that's what she's pinned her hopes on. That's what she's dreaming of. So there's sort of an epic um, New Year's or Christmas Eve party at the bar. It's 1944. It's bitterly cold. Um, the Battle of the Bulge is going on across in Belgium. Um, no one knows how it's going to turn out. It does not look good. So I'll read a little bit from from this chapter. And then we can just hang out. That seems like a lot of pages. It's not, though. It's nine. All right. Mary, eyes down on the floor, was almost to the front door as it banged shut, opened a crack and banged again without latching because of the accumulated frost, frozen slush, and snow rimming the frame. Prudence stood in the entryway, her coat belted tight around her waist. Her feet were clad in black suede peep-toe Mary Janes, and her slender brown legs were bare, as were her hands and head. There was no way she could have walked all the way dressed like that. She stood still in the doorway as though waiting for someone to take her coat and then her arm and see her to her seat. Mary moved past her. Prudence barely looked down as as Mary passed, her eyes searching the crowd for something or someone else, her chin high. The rim of her nose was red and moist-looking. Mary lifted the door and put her shoulder into it to force the latch past the striker. She asked, still looking down at the floor as she moved past Prudence back to the bar. Sweet Christ, is it ever, said Prudence. Now, now, said Father Paul, who stood by the bar, a brandy in his hands. His usual vestments were placed with a sweater buttoned up to his chin, its shawl collar so stiff and plump it looked like a yoke for an ox. His cheeks were red and his hair slicked to the side with, with pomade. Prudence took off her coat, folded it in her arms, and held it in front of her. She wore a black wool dress with a wide collar and ivory buttons up the front. Some of the C 